You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and from the lonely Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters, overlooking the devastated San Fernando Valley, this is Postmortem. Once again, we are highlighting the work of a terrific filmmaker from another country. I try to do this as often as possible, as I think it's important to share creative work from places other than home. Internationally, our genre has allowed numerous creatives to express themselves in independent ways that seem to allow more freedom to stretch the boundaries of imagination than here in the United States. Yes, we have lots of profoundly talented homegrown artists here, and their work is often as wildly freewheeling as anywhere else. But that's rarely the case for genre films in theaters here in America. The studios are profoundly cautious, wanting to appeal to the lowest common denominator to achieve maximum box office. You can't blame them. It's hugely expensive to make and especially market movies in the U.S. It's also true in other countries. However, you will find more creative reach in many of the genre films outside our borders because the foreign audiences tend to embrace them. Not everywhere, of course. Many countries are extremely tight when it comes to censorship. However, some of the most startling and polished genre films I've seen from beyond our borders come from Latin America, Spain, the UK, Australia, South Korea, among others. I've been lucky enough to see the work by amazing filmmakers at genre festivals around the world. Jennifer Kent, Issa Lopez, Chan Wook Park, Bong Joon-ho, Neil Marshall, and countless others. Those international journeys of discovery are on hold now because of the wretched coronavirus that has changed all of our lives. But even homebound, we can discover new depths of fear and terror from around the globe. And I'm suggesting it's a great way to fill some downtime and acquaint yourselves with some delicacies of horror you might otherwise have missed. Our guest is one of those filmmakers whose work I discovered at a foreign genre film festival. I first saw Juan of the Dead at a festival in Portugal and was blown away by it. But it wasn't until John Landis brought him to a Masters of Horror dinner the day after he got married. Since then, I've been lucky enough to work with Alejandro Bruges on Nightmare Cinema and be able to call him a friend. We'll trace his journey from Buenos Aires to Havana to LA after this. It's a little crazy out there right now, so Fangoria is offering a free two-month digital membership to everyone. Go to Fangoria.com for more information and to make an account. Then pour over all the exclusive articles, interviews, and reviews on the site, as well as original video content and podcasts, like this one. You'll even have access to high-resolution scans of the first 15 issues of the original run of Fangoria magazine, and counting. Go to Fangoria.com now to start your free digital membership. And if you're looking to add to your social distancing watch list, Fangoria's latest movie, VFW, is now available to stream on demand, and Satanic Panic is now available to watch on Shudder. And by the way... So is Nightmare Cinema. 
Alejandro, tell me about childhood in Buenos Aires. Uh, were you a movie kid from the beginning? What was life like? First, I love that you're the only person that says my last name right. <laughs> I'm doing my Spanish. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well done, Mick. Thank you. I was like crossing my fingers. <laughs> uh, you know, I we it's weird that we haven't talked about it but but uh, i was in i was just born in buenos aires i i i didn't live there for long my parents were diplomats um and oh. and, and yeah so i was born there uh, but i don't recall anything i left when i was three years old um, ah. so you traveled a lot because of your parents being diplomats but when i was in buenos aires they like to claim you as their own yeah well yeah, they didn't give me the nationality when I tried. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was so, it was a weird time, but uh, but I wasn't in Buenos Aires. Uh, but um, back then, uh, my parents were in Bolivia. They were working in Bolivia, and I was splitting my time between Cuba and Bolivia. And and yes, back then I was already a horror child. Yeah. yeah. So did you travel a lot since both of your parents were diplomats? Did they travel together? Did they travel separately? Oh, no, they traveled, they traveled was... together. They were both uh, working together. So, yeah, it was always traveling together and uh, always in Latin America. It was moving a lot around Latin America. And you were in a suitcase between them. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, Latin America is a great uh, place for horror. You grow up. Uh, listening to all these horror stories, urban legends, or just plain legends, and, and it really gets under your your skin, I guess. Well, do you think that may be rooted in Catholicism, which has such a great hold on Latin America? I'm sure it does. Like I remember, I'm I'm uh, I'm an atheist because, well, my parents were Cuban diplomats, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so communism. But I do remember uh, the the Christ that my ma that my grandmother had above her bed was the goriest Christ I have ever seen in my life, <laughs> and I probably saw it like before I was five years old, uh, and I still remember that I've been I've been actually trying to find a Christ like that because I have never seen so much suffering <laughs> in one person <laughs> and like, I don't know where she got it, but yeah, I think, I think, I think it's a lot of that, a lot of the Catholicism. Were you raised a Catholic? No, 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 not at all. I mean, like I do remember when I saw that Christ, I asked who's that. And, and I, I remember perfectly the answer. Um, your father doesn't believe in that. So you don't have to. And I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, Funny thing, now my father goes to church every day. <laughs> every day? Every day. He, in his old age, he became very Catholic. But I'm still an atheist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, tell me what, what the introduction to the horrific side of things was for you. Was it hearing these local legends? Was it watching movies on television? Or what was that open door for you? I think it was watching movies on television. I I remember uh, I I have very few memories of the first horror things I watched, uh, and it took me a long time to realize what they were, and and I still don't know how my parents let me watch that, or maybe they didn't know that I could 
wake up at night and turn on the TV. But I have flashes of watching Lucia Fulci's Zombie 2 and stuff like that. Then I remember at some point, uh, one of my uncles brought Evil Dead home. And that blew us away. Uh, I mean, me and my friends, because we would be watching Evil Dead the whole time. And after that, I only wanted to watch uh, horror. So... Uh, well, that was incredibly influential. Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two seem to have a lot of elements that that uh, are represented in your work as well. Oh, for sure, it's uh, they are still uh, some of my favorite horror movies. I mean, Evil Dead Two is my bible. So <laughs> yeah, I, I don't believe in, in God, but I believe in Ash. Um, hell with uh, hell with Catholicism. Let's do Ramiism. Yeah, of course. Uh, I, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I would try to watch anything I could uh, horror uh, related. And I remember how excited we were when we realized there was an Evil Dead 2. And then this was in Cuba. And then when, when we were back in Bolivia, um, there was a video store uh, near my house. And I watched everything that they had in the horror section. Uh, and this was between since I was, I guess, from eight years to thirteen or something. Well, how great to grow up in an era where you could virtually tap any movie that you wanted to see and bring it into your home. I mean, you still can. I mean, you can do that now more than ever. The, the difference was. Oh, like, I mean, when I was a child, we had to, you know, wait until uh, mark something in TV Guide and see what was coming at three in the morning, set no arm and wake up, and not be able to just push a button and record it. Yeah, this was in Bolivia. When I was in Cuba, I, you you really didn't have much access to American films. I I, don't, I still don't know why my uncle had uh, Evil Dead because. I, that wasn't usually the kind of film that he was carrying around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Cuba itself seems to be repressive in some ways, uh, particularly with some artists. To make your first movie, your first theatrical motion picture in Cuba, and it's this real uh, social commentary film as well as an all-out horror film seems kind of shocking. Well, that was actually my second movie. Oh, your second yeah, movie. Okay. No, one, the first. no, one, knows, no one knows the first, and it shall remain that way. <laughs> I will respect that. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, but this had to be something that really challenged the status quo in the, the political uh, uh, weather in, in Cuba at the time. The thing is that since it hadn't been done, it's very interesting. They, they only do comedies. They only did comedies and, and dramas there. And it, I think it had to do with uh, that all the filmmakers, all the Cuban filmmakers, um, East, went to study in Europe, in France, and the Soviet Union uh, back then. And uh, horror, it, well, it wasn't banned, uh, but it was seen as a capitalist uh, product. So no one did it. Um, and then I had the idea of doing uh, One of the Dead, and I guess no one took it seriously. So that's uh, partly why I was able to get away with it and um, and I, I was 
I mean, I, I obviously wanted to put a lot of social commentary in there. Uh, and I remember because I had to bring the the screenplay to the proper authorities for them to, to read. Uh, and, and I remember they said to me, there's something here. There's some uh, social. And I, and I called them and I was like, what are you talking about? This is a zombie movie. And they, they didn't even know what that was. So they just let me do it. And... I guess they didn't see it coming. <laughs> well, it's interesting that zombie movies are so often social commentary, starting with George Romero on Night of the Living Dead. That kind of laid the groundwork for it. Why do you think that works as such a good metaphor? I guess because zombies are us. I mean, it's 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 your friends and your neighbors uh, coming back from the dead. It's not... It's not like a, a, a imperial entity or some tentacle monster or whatever. It's it's us. So it's but without our souls. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, and there's also our fear of death, obviously. So uh, it taps into that, and uh, and I don't know. It's it's always been perfect for social commentary. So yeah, thanks on this. <laughs> So you you were able to get your start going to film school in Havana? I did. I studied screenwriting. I actually I actually never thought about directing until I did it for the first time. Uh, I I grew up writing as soon as I learned when I was a kid as soon as as soon as I learned how to write, I started writing stories uh, and then I tried to study literature and I failed because I mainly didn't want to study <laughs> and I ended up going to film school and, and I started screenwriting and then I started hating the movies the directors were doing out of my screenplays um, and I thought well if someone is going to screw this up it better be me uh, <laughs> and, and then I decided to make a movie and so yeah it's, uh, I, I went to film school yeah <laughs> well, well, tell me what life was like in Cuba. You know, we being restricted from traveling there. I have been to Havana once uh, years ago, but um, it must be a very different life growing up in Cuba and going to film school there and, and making movies there. Now that you're ensconced in Los Angeles, it must seem like two very different worlds. It is two different worlds. Worlds. It's 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 so weird. It's like Cuba. It, it, Cuba is a place where time just stopped, and and I mean, some people uh, see that in the old cars from the fifties, all the old buildings and that kind of stuff. But it's really like the time stopped there. Like uh, I moved to LA and I went back to Havana after three or four years. And I remember uh, I went to this uh, club to meet with a friend. And when they were, uh, when I walked in, I saw the same guy playing that when I left and I looked at the audience and it was the same people on the same tables, <laughs> like week after week after week, doing exactly the same. And, and I just freaked out because it's like, it was a, like a Twilight Zone thing. Like, <laughs> I remember I, I left that place and I started walking to my car faster and faster. And I was thinking I should get on a plane and come back here. Because it truly is like the time stop there. Like, you go back and it's the same potholes on the street. It's the same. I don't know. It's such a weird uh, thing. But at the same time, 
I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. It's it's such a different place. And also, I don't know. Since we don't have, we're not oh, in Cuba. We're not connected online like the whole time. Like here, uh, when you when I go back, uh, I suddenly have this. Um, I start coming up with ideas. I start actually talking to people and, and bumping into people and seeing things. And, and you do get some some different life experience that you do get uh, here. Uh, but yeah, it's a completely different thing. Well, growing up in a communist country, um, your education is unlimited. You could go to film school without having to your parents mortgage their house or something like that. So was it a, a democracy, this film school? Saw people from all different kinds of lives or? Uh, it's an international film school. It's a very interesting thing. The international film school uh, was founded in the 80s by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Uh, uh -huh. and, uh, and basically it's, uh, people from all over the world and it's it's not a big school like each year you get like two students from uh, no it's not two it's like you get two students from Cuba and and then everyone else from different countries and uh, it's a uh, probably back in the day when I studied it was only seven per students in each uh, specialty uh, uh, so it was, I guess, a hundred and something people in the school, uh, and and you do meet people from all over the world. Uh, and I don't know, film school was a great experience in Cuba. It, it was, and you have teachers from all over the world. Uh, it's a very interesting film school. Well, your first movie personal belongings, which we're not going to watch at your suggestion. Um, how did that happen? Was this a natural progression from graduating film school? I have to say, it's not that I don't like it. I think there's some good things in there. Uh, it's just that I did that movie. It was, um, it was like three or four years after I graduated from film school. Um, and I decided I wanted to make a movie. And I actually have a, had two screenplays. I had this one, which was kind of like a drama, romantic drama. And the other one was a thriller. And also no one was doing thrillers there. So I said, no one is going to give me money for a thriller. So I went with this one and I raised some private money. Me with my producer, we raised, we raised some private money and did it. And one of the reasons I don't, uh, I don't love it that much is that back then we were still shooting with um, digital cameras, but in mini DV. And it was at the time where uh, you got a new camera every three months. And I wish we had waited three more months to have one that was HD. And so the thing is that I just don't like how it looks. It feels old. Um, so, but yeah, it was that. So it's it was not like, the content. It's not yeah, the content. It's, it's um, the book. I'm, yeah, I'm good with the content. I, I mean, it's the first movie, but like I wish... Uh, I wish uh, we had just waited a bit more to do it. Um, but yeah, it was like raising private money, going to people, telling them I want to make a movie. I have done these movies. I have written these movies. Uh, and yeah, let's make a movie. And we managed to raise um, $30,000, I think, which was a lot for us back then. I mean, for an independent Cuban, Cuban movie. Uh, do you think it was easier to get your first film off the ground in Cuba than it would have been in the U.S.? 
I don't know. I mean, um, it's funny. Uh, I, I, I knew how to put together personal belongings. I knew how to put together one of the dead. Like right now, I wouldn't know how to put together a movie here. <laughs> uh, but the, I, I think I think it was different because there's something here, like uh, and and you're you're from LA, yeah, right? Born and raised. Yeah, I was born here. Yeah, yeah. So everyone here, like uh, I, I bet you do know a lot of people that grew up with you that also also make films. Um, so you have that uh, that uh, community. Uh, well, thing. the business and the community are here, but. Um, the opportunities are limited because everybody comes here to do it. The competition is outrageous if you look at it as competition. And so many people come here specifically to make movies that uh, I would think that maybe putting your first movie together in Cuba would not be as as competitive. Uh, I'm listen. I think, bottom line, it's hard to do movies everywhere, and making a movie is a small <laughs> miracle, no matter where you are. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's uh, it's. I think it was. I think it was difficult, uh, but um, no more or less than it's been <laughs> after that. So. Right. Well, what now? Let's get into the horror roots here and let's get into one of the dead and how that came about and what inspired you to do that and decide I'm going to make the first Cuban zombie movie. Uh, yeah, I, it was, I remember I was talking to my producer, we were, uh, we were in the street and you have been to Havana. So you probably noticed that people in Havana look like zombies. <laughs> because <laughs> That's what uh, 60 years of revolution has done to us. Uh, so I was with my producer and I, and I was looking at the people on the street and I said to him, you know, we could make a zombie movie here and we wouldn't need to use any makeup and we can call it one of the dead. And I just said everything like that. And suddenly I looked at him and I said, you know what, I'm going to write that. That's going to be the next movie. Because suddenly I had a tone, I had a character, I had a genre, I had a subject, I had everything in that joke. So uh, I sit down, sat down and, and I, I started writing. It took me a year to write that. Wow. Well, it's interesting because horror comedies are rarely funny or scary. Juan of the Dead works on both levels, you know, like an American werewolf in London, something like that, where it's a genuine horror movie and a genuine comedy at the same time. Yeah, I think I think the hardest part uh, was to try to strike that balance, and uh, be between the horror side and the social commentary, um, and that was that, that was very challenging, but also very interesting because what I did, and this is why it took so long to write. Um, I, I uh, on one hand, I was trying to see to to imagine. Uh, scenes that I hadn't seen in a zombie movie that I would like to see. To see. Uh, and on the other, in order for the social commentary to work, um, it had to be grounded in real life. So what I did was uh, try to steal as much as I could from real life 
just imagine it in a zombie <laughs> context. Uh, like, um, I don't know, we had an exodus uh, in the 80s, and I was like, okay, how would this exodus be if it was uh, with zombies? Okay, so then, uh, then I came up with a scene with the, all the people in rafts in the ocean and all the zombies underwater. Um, so it was a lot of, of that, uh, of taking stuff from, from real life and reimagine it in a zombie movie setting um but yeah that was i mean that was all about the balance uh, it, it was if for me if someone in cuba saw the movie in it, it had to mean something to them they had to feel that i was saying something about uh, our life there now and if someone outside of cuba saw the movie it had to work for them as a zombie movie it was all about that. Well, one of the great things, too, about, you know, for most of the world, Havana is not a very familiar place. And you really used the locations really well. There's a lot of location work where you actually show the surroundings to a great extent. And I think that's one of the elements that helps ground it so much. Yeah, I guess I was doing, I don't know, I, I think it was Hitchcock <laughs> what said that, but it's like, you have the Eiffel Tower, you push someone from there. It wasn't, I, I don't think he, did it. he said it with the Eiffel Tower, uh, probably Mont uh, Rushmore or something, but, yeah. but it was basically that. I wanted to use, I wanted to do the Havana that you know from pictures, that you know from every movie, from postcards or whatever. So I was... Um, I, I was I really trying to uh, use the most uh, the known locations. If you go visit to Havana, you're gonna walk through all the places that I filled with zombies. And actually, I remember one of the things that happened with that was I had this scene that uh, it, it's uh, it's a scene with I think 300 zombies and they are all decapitated <laughs> in one row. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to set that scene in the Revolution Square, but I couldn't say that in the screenplay because the moment they saw the Revolution Square, they were gonna freak out. So I just put a square. <laughs> and and when we were and when we were in prep. Um, uh, the producers and the location managers were like, so what square are you thinking about? And I'm like, ah, the Revolution Square. They were like, are you insane? How are we going to do that? Um, so that one was the only one that I think we didn't uh, shoot on location. We had to go to a, a big parking lot outside Havana, and then we added the buildings uh, in the background uh, in post. But, yeah. So in a country like Cuba that is not used to making horror films. You've got, even though you said you could get people without makeup, there's a lot of people in makeup. Dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people. What were the biggest challenges in putting together a massive zombie onslaught movie in a country that had never done one before? And makeup effects and all of that. Oh, it's like, ah, I wish we had a good documentary about making one because it was insane. So our, our special effects uh, makeup uh, team was from Mexico uh, ah. because no one in Cuba had done this. Uh, and they had to come here to LA to buy the the materials, then go back to Mexico and then uh, go to Cuba. Uh, so first, it doesn't look good when you have a bunch of Mexicans showing up at the airport with boxes full of body parts. 
it's not good. <laughs> it's like we had to have our producers waiting at the airport uh, all the time and ready to talk to customs for each uh, trip. Then in Cuba, we also didn't have like facilities for them uh, uh, to to be building this. So they were like, okay, we need a room uh, at this temperature and we need this kind of oven and this kind of thing. And my producer was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can get you two air conditionings and, and do same. <laughs> and, and same, when we were shooting, here you have makeup trailers. But in Cuba, we didn't have makeup trailers. Basically, what we did is we used a truck. We adapted a truck and we put some air conditionings, like house air conditionings on the truck, in the truck, uh, and, and they were working there. And the thing is that we had, a, between the Mexican team and the Cuban side of the team, we only had seven people uh, working on makeup and sometimes we needed 300 zombies um, oh and yeah so they were they were working from 11 p.m from the night before uh, for a scene that we were shooting on the next day and and also it's cuba so it's the heat is terrible and that's not good for the makeup and also um alcohol it's it's not good to be drinking alcohol when you're in makeup because it falls and you sweat and go tell that that to all the cuban extras that you you can't drink any rum uh, uh, before shooting the scenes so talk about revolution yeah that was uh, that was that was insane and also it wasn't Juan was a very big movie for Cuba it, I, I mean it, it, it looked like a big movie from anywhere it was just like a bunch of trucks taking over blocks and blocks of the city at the time and we had neighbors calling the police because there were people taking uh, heads out of a trash can uh, <laughs> we had you know these these extras they didn't know what a zombie movie was we had to make a zombie school to teach them how to move um, I, I talked to a couple of, of um of friends of mine that were uh, dancers, like modern dance, and I we watched a lot of zombie movies, and we chose uh, different kinds of movements, uh, like for the different stages. If it's a fresh uh, zombie, or if it's someone uh, like that's been dead for hours or days and it's more stiff. So we so we designed a, a bunch of movements, and the thing is that. All the, the the people in Cuba that really look like zombies are the old people. So I wanted to reflect that. So all my zombies were old people. So you had a, a bunch of extras from 60 to 80 years old in our zombie school learning how to move as zombies. <laughs> and the things you saw were insane. And they, they were super excited. I remember one of the first days that we took our zombies to the street, one of them actually beat uh, the the man that he was supposed to attack, but not for real. Well, he actually took a, a chunk of skin out of the guy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh. uh, and, and we hired him three more times. Um, <laughs> but because he was such a good actor. Yeah, but I mean, it was it was crazy the things that we saw and that we did uh, there. Yeah, that was that was pretty pretty crazy. Well, tell me about the experience once the film came out and went to festivals you're going to these genre festivals and other festivals around the world and it became kind of a sensation 
people were talking about it and it, it, you know, it's become sort of a classic. A lot of our audience may not have seen it and I beg them to because I can't imagine anyone not loving this movie. But tell me your experience of going to these places around the world and showing your movie and the reactions you got. Well, you know how it is. Like the, the first the first time you show the movie, it's all the nerves. And uh, we were premiering in Toronto. And uh, and that's, that's the moment where you suddenly are thinking, what if I am the only one that laughs at this? <laughs> um, and and it went great. Like suddenly the the audience started laughing. They started cheering. They started clapping. Like if it was a soccer game or something. Uh, and after that, it was like that everywhere. Then we came here to Fantastic Fest, and, uh, and that's where I guess I fell in love um, with that audience uh, and with the Alamo Draft House and uh, all that because that experience was insane and. Uh, and everywhere we, we went, the movie got a lot of love. Uh, we, we got a bunch of audience awards, which were like really the, the ones I cared the most. Um, so I don't know, it was so much love. Uh, actually, it was so much love that whenever people ask me, are you gonna make a sequel? I was like, no, I, I, I don't think I will because I, uh, this uh, this was a product of love, and I don't want I don't want to do it for the wrong reasons. Uh, I don't want to do it because this was successful. It's uh, I don't know. I wanted to live like that. Uh, I totally beautiful. admire that. I admire that. And now the success of this movie probably I assume prompted you to want to move to the states where you could actually become a part of the the uh, filmmaking world. Uh, make your living and and um, see you have your film seen worldwide. Yeah, I mean Juan was seen worldwide, but 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 yeah, I wanted I wanted more. I wanted more, and also I tend to like uh, to do big stuff, and uh, I I also felt that I couldn't go much uh, bigger in Cuba because I have already destroyed Havana. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, how many times you am I going to create? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Actually, if I wanted to, uh, uh, for a long time, I was saying that if I did a sequel, it wouldn't be with zombies. It was going to be some other kind of monster uh, movie. I wanted to do something like The Host in Havana. Uh, uh, but but yeah, I mean, I had already destroyed Havana. I I, I really <laughs> couldn't do it uh, many more times. So that was one of the reasons to move here. And I also had um, bigger projects. Um, uh, and by the way, uh, I also I, I want to come back and make movies in Cuba. Obviously, I still think I have some things to say over there. Uh, I just haven't been able to go back and make them, but but I would love to. So it, 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 I, I don't think it was like a clean um, cut. It's not like I, I turned my back and I'm fuck that island. I never want to go there. No, no, no. <laughs> um, yeah. But but yeah, after one, suddenly uh, I had the opportunity and I moved here. And so. I'm sure you were being called by lots of agents and, and oh, yeah. being courted by people and all of that stuff and making that decision. So what was your next step going to be? I know the next thing you did was one of the segments in ABCs of Death too, but I'm sure that you had scripts in your pocket, that you oh, had yeah. all kinds of development deals and things that, you know, 
I had like, actually ABCs of that. I was still living in Cuba when I was uh, invited oh. invited to do ABCs of that. Uh, but while I was in the process uh, of waiting for the movie, uh, we had the opportunity to move here, me and my wife, and. And we said, okay, let's go there and let's make uh, the short there because at the time I didn't even know what my letter would be or anything. So, uh, so we moved here, and um, I think as soon as we got here, they started the process. <laughs> um, I, I, and actually, I remember I, I remember I was uh, living in in Miami with my brothers. I, I had just gotten here. Uh, when when that started uh, moving and and I said I I realized I, in Miami I didn't know anyone here I had a friend and he said come here let's make it in LA and that's and that night I said to my wife let's go and we packed our bags got in the car and drove to LA and we shot that I think that week we shot the ABC uh, short here so it was just like arriving here and shooting that but yeah I did have another project uh, when I moved um, and it wasn't. Um, actually, it wasn't a horror movie. It was a heist movie, and it was like, oh. and it was a heist movie set in Cuba. Uh, I love that screenplay. Actually, it was a heist. That sounds great. It, it, and it was a heist movie set in Cuba about a bunch of American expats that uh, had been hiding there, like thieves from the sixties and seventies uh, that were hiding in secret in Cuba paying the government to stay there and uh, it was like and I actually got to destroy a lot of Havana there <laughs> I mean yeah you love to yeah, yeah I mean I, I like I like breaking things um, so so yeah that was a, a that was the, the the big project that I had when I moved here but um, I think when you move here so I guess my reasoning was I did a movie that was this size and, and it, it sold there all over the world and it went to a bunch of festivals. So I assume the next step is doing something bigger. Um, but then when, when you come here, it's like you've never done anything because, well, your movie was in Spanish. Uh, and, and also it's not like uh, uh, they're going to hand you 10 times the budget of that movie uh, or anything like that. It's like, first you have to prove yourself in English or whatever that means. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, yeah, that uh, that project didn't happen there. Then it came back to life. Then it went uh, back to sleep again. Uh, and I hope it comes back to life at some point because it's a super fun heist movie. Well, once you're in L.A., suddenly there are opportunities for you as a director for hire, not coming in with your own material and doing your own movie next, but doing a couple episodes of uh, Robert Rodriguez's From Dusk Till Dawn series. So tell me about the experience of being a director for hire. You didn't write the scripts. You were brought in to do episodes. And it's an experience I've had, and it's quite different in a lot of ways. And in some ways, I really loved it. And in other ways, you know, it's it's not exactly the same as your personal work. Yeah, it's certainly different, uh, but I, I enjoy it so much anyway. It's it's different because you know that ultimately it's not your baby. It's not it's not the same feeling. Like uh, I remember when when we were doing the first. Uh, 
uh, tests uh, within one of the dead, like uh, getting the characters in the uh, dress and all that. Uh, and suddenly when I saw Juan standing in front of me dressed uh, like that and with the or and the nunchucks, uh, uh, that was beautiful because it's something that was in your head and suddenly it's standing in front of you. So when you go to do a series, it's different because you're playing in someone else's playground. Uh, but from dusk is one of the best experiences I've had in my life. And I loved it so much. Uh, man, I wish that show kept going because it was a blast to do. Uh, and also, it's like, it's the most beautiful crew. Since I, uh, I came here, I have always uh, been told to, uh, everyone was telling me, you have to shoot in Austin, you have to shoot in Austin. So I finally got to shoot in Austin, and it was awesome. And I love Austin so much. I love the crew so much. Robert uh, was great. I love the actors. It was just a beautiful experience. Yeah, the, the opportunity to do episodes of someone else's TV shows, if you're lucky, can be really great. You're using all the latest equipment. You're working with a bunch of new young actors you've not worked with before. And like my experience on Once Upon a Time, I did a couple episodes of that. And I was able to direct maybe the most emotional sequence I'd ever directed in my life with, with Robert Carlyle and, you know, really wonderful people. And I'm there for three days and then I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> three yeah. weeks and then I'm done. And yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and, you let go. And it actually takes off some of the pressure because it's not your baby. So I don't know if, if the actor wants to change a line, you, you turn to the showrunner and you're like, are you okay with this? Yeah, okay. So you go to sleep at night. Um, it's not like you're thinking, oh, he didn't say that. No, no, no. You, you, you know what you have to get, you go and you get it. And it's great. Uh, and uh, But you know, you're saying um, uh, young actors, but I also had the chance um, in From Desk, uh, I got to, to work with, uh, with Danny Trejo and direct Tom Savini. I got uh, to direct. I got to direct Tom Tavini. <laughs> that was really cool. And also, I mean, it's just cool. Like, it's I. Well, you know me. We have worked together. You know, I like to fool around. When I got to from desk, I, I the first thing I said was like, "Where's the cock gun?" <laughs> uh, and they were like we have it here okay you know i have to wear that right <laughs> and i have to go and take my picture in front of the titty twister and that kind of stuff so so yeah but like i was geeking around a lot yeah <laughs> that was super fun one of the favorite things that i've been able to organize is the masters of horror dinners and that's where we met uh, John Landis brought you and your wife to, to the dinner. I met David Slade there, uh, a bunch of other people who, who've become friends and collaborators. And we got the opportunity to work together. You know, you were one of the very first people I wanted involved in, in nightmare cinema. And I couldn't be happier. You know, you, you're the thing in the woods segment was the perfect way to start that movie. And, um, you know, tell me what that process was. The process? Yeah. Um, well, the process, is like, the process is like this. I was at the gym and I get a call from you and you say, hey, uh, we're thinking about making a movie. It's me. It's, uh, <laughs> it's Joe Dante. And I go like, yes, yes, yes. And that was, <laughs> that was the process. Uh, and then uh, how was the process? 
uh, I remember I was like, I didn't want to know what the other directors were up to. Not even when the, we actually had the screenplays. I don't know if you remember. I didn't want to read the other screenplays. I remember I, pretty well, yeah. I, I wanted to be surprised when I saw it for the first time, but I also didn't want to be nervous and, all, and have all the pressure because uh, there I was with uh, all these people that were more, much more experienced and much better than me. And so I wanted to, I wanted to uh, set the bar high for my, myself. And I said, I, I want to do uh, something that it's, uh, that it's unique and that uh, it's up to the challenge. And the thing is that I have, I, I, other than the ABCs of Dead, I had never done um, uh, shorts. It's not so much my thing. I usually, when I have ideas, it's for features, and um, and I was writing down a bunch of of, of ideas uh, for that for that story. And until one day, uh, I I was driving, and, and it struck me, and I had this idea about doing the third act of a slasher. And starting with the girl running all covered in blood because everyone in the audience would know uh, what movie we're watching because we have seen that a hundred times before. Um, and then I came up with a twist and I had to pull over and I called my wife and I said, listen to this and tell me what you think. And I I told her the idea and she was like, yeah, that's, that's funny. That's good. So that's, <laughs> that's where I knew I had something. And then the next uh, step was calling you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was a great call when you told yeah. me. And uh, there's a twist that happens for those who haven't seen Nightmare Cinema yet. Watch it on Shutter. Uh, it takes a turn that you don't expect. Yeah, that's what makes it really, really special. Yeah, it is. It is. I still don't know. Like I remember when we were shooting, I would. I was like looking at that, like at the stuff that we were doing, and I was like, "Where the hell did this come from?" <laughs> but yeah. Well, a certain visual effects that if they hadn't worked right and we had a very limited oh, yeah. budget to work with, it would have entirely fucked up your movie. Oh, yeah, but, I know. It's always like that. Yeah. yeah. But, but you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing. I guess a couple of months ago, I was going through some old notes because I was thinking about I was working on a new idea and I was going through old notes and I saw a bunch of notes about my short that we had gotten from the producers and and the notes were terrible it's like it's like I mean thank thank them for making the movie but it, it was very producer notes uh, and that was to protect you from those yeah but that, that that's what i was going to say that in in your emails uh, you 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 were saying uh, these are the notes you don't have to do them do if, if there's anything good you take it and if not uh, you leave it and I think there was actually one good note uh, that I took. Uh, but when I saw that email, I was so grateful uh, that you stood up for us like that. Uh, because, man, that that short could have been something very different if I had implemented those notes. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, and well, I, Hire people with a vision and let them fulfill their vision. You know, just like on Masters of Horror, Nightmare Cinema had the same philosophy. Yeah, 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 and and it was great. Like I, I, 
I, I love that I still have that email because if, oh, if you look at that, that, those notes, uh, <laughs> oh my God, I was like, I, I swear, I, I, I should have sent it to you because I saw it and I was like, oh, thank me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad it worked out. And, and, you know, our experience, we got to travel to festivals and have a premiere at Fantasia in Montreal and all of the filmmakers were there for that. And it was so gratifyingly well received. It was yeah. it was so blast. And, and by the way, it, Fantasia is the same as with Juan. I, it's that moment where you are like, okay, uh, is the audience gonna laugh at this, or is or am I the only asshole laughing? <laughs> and and I wanted I wanted to see how long it took them to realize it was a horror comedy, and it was about twenty seconds. <laughs> and then they were laughing so hard. <laughs> and they really got into it when yeah. she starts slipping on the body. Yeah. <laughs> That's where they go, wait, wait, what? Oh, it's funny. Yeah. Mainly. Good. <laughs> well, once again, your latest project is a director for hire gig. It was it's actually a sequel to a Hulu Into the Dark movie uh, called Puka Lives. You didn't write this one. You were brought in as a director. So tell me about that experience. It's part of the Blumhouse machine and um, how you were recruited into this and and how you saw the project. Um, so, well, that was last year. Actually, it was in September. I had this other project um, uh, that I was working on that was moving forward and suddenly fell apart like projects do. And uh, and I went to Cuba on vacation, uh, and I was like very depressed. <laughs> I was like thinking, "What's gonna be next?" Uh, I wasn't sure what was uh, what I was gonna do because that was gonna be my next year, uh, the next year of my life. And suddenly, when I got on, uh, on the plane back to LA, as I get on the plane in Havana, I got an email. Uh, from uh, the one of the Into the Dark producers, we had met previously for other uh, possible Into the Darks, and I had an email saying, um, "What's your availability?" And I'm like, "I'm available." And then when when I did my first stop in Mexico, I had the screenplay, and I read it uh, on my flight to LA. And then the next week, I, that same week, like I think two days later, I had the meeting for that. And one week later, I was I was starting prep. I had to call Nacho. I had to talk to Nacho first. I said, hey, because Nacho and I are very, very good friends. And he directed the first one. Um, and I had to call him and say, hey, I was offered this. Are you cool if I, with me if I do it? And, uh, and he loved the idea. So, yeah. So it was like that. It was like, you know how it is in this town. Suddenly, sometimes you carry projects for years and it doesn't happen. And yeah. sometimes you get one email one day and next week you're starting prep. It was like that. Right. <clears throat> you're on a plane to Vancouver or something. Yeah. No, no, that was later. Oh, that was crazy. That was later. That was for the Sam Raimi show. But, but uh, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. So um, as this show comes out, Puka Lives is on. And yet, um, we're recording it two days before it's being released. You still aren't finished. And tell me about the process of post-production in this world of coronavirus where nobody can get together. It's insane. I mean, I, I don't wish that to everyone. It's so stressful. 
because uh, basically how was I mean into the dark is a very tight schedule um, uh, and it moves like really fast. Are they like eighteen day shoots or something? It's sixteen day shoot, yeah. Sixteen, wow. 16 yeah that was i think there's a challenge in every movie and and my big takeaway in this one is that i can make a movie in 16 days i know people that do it in less but i don't know one of the dead was 44 <laughs> so <laughs> my first yeah, movie was my first movie was 36 so it suddenly go to 16 days it's insane and yeah you move like really fast and suddenly we're on post-production and all these coronavirus things starts happening and, and you're just hoping it doesn't get bad, but you see that it's coming. It's like watching um, car crash in slow motion. That moment when you when you, you see it's gonna happen, and there's nothing you can do, and you can just prepare for it. Well, basically, we finished. Uh, we did our last days of sound mix two days before we started our lockdown, our, our staying at home thing uh, and after that it's been everyone working from home <laughs> so I've had like I had to do color sessions from home I've had to do all the VFX notes well you're that's usually from home too anyway so but but it's been very stressful to say the least uh, but you know so it's you've got two shots left and and this thing happens on <laughs> Friday, um, how how's that working? I I heard they were done, but I haven't seen them. But that's uh, the thing. But that's the thing. At this speed, it's gonna be like that. Uh, I I I guess there's a lot of stuff like that. That it's like you know it's done. Um, you just no, you haven't seen it. I I guess I'll see it tomorrow, and I don't even know if I have time or later today. I don't know if I have time to <laughs> to give anything any other note. But it's so, it's did you, very did, did you see the first Puka before you got offered Puka Lives? Oh yeah, I mean naturally as I said, he's a very good friend. He's like a he's like a small brother to me. So he was here shooting and he and since he was prepping he was like sending me stuff and uh, I saw an early cut of Puka which I I do with I I I I mean, if he's doing something here, I most likely watch an early cut. It was the same with Colossal. Um, so, yeah, I had seen an early cut of Puka, and we had talked about I mean, I knew all the stories about Puka. Uh, he said to me, he warned me, he said, Puka is hard. Like, that that uh, that uh, outfit, is, it's hard. And I... I I'm, I thought he was joking. <laughs> <laughs> the creature in a suit. Yeah, the creature, so the, the suit is... I mean, it's insanely hard. It's like all the problems. Um, but yeah, I was very familiar with Puka, and obviously I revisited the first one. But there's one thing, though, uh, and this is something I when, when I got the screenplay, I thought, like, the first Puka has this feel, and it's very contained, and it, it almost feels like a European. Well, he's European. But, it, <laughs> but I mean, not everything he does feels European. Um, but it, this one did. It felt like a European movie, and um, and I I I I was I got the screenplay and I said I hope this goes in another direction. It would be cool if it was something like Aliens, where 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 it's something else, and it, it's exactly that. It has nothing to do with the first Puka, other than Puka. And it's much more like a, a horror comedy with a lot of action too. 
as somebody I have written and directed sequels myself in my career, and there are certain challenges. What did you find to be challenging about doing a sequel to somebody else's movie? I um, I know there's a lot of expectations when you're following uh, Nacho's uh, footsteps because uh, everyone loves Nacho, um, but I I I you know I never think about it that way because I think it's the same when we were doing Nightmare Cinema. It's like if if you think too much about like oh I have I have to do to try to to do better than me or or Joe or Yuhei or David or the same. You can't go against that. You have to do the best you that you can. Um, so that's that's what I was always aiming for. And, and I wanted to leave a mark. I wasn't trying to mimic Nacho. I was uh, trying to do Alejandro. So uh, okay. if, if you see the... Well, oh, you, uh, you've seen the movie. <laughs> so there's a lot of... There's a lot oh, of. It's uh, very Alejandro. It's very Alejandro. He <laughs> does have a lot of stuff there, and uh, that's very me. Uh, and by the way, there's uh, there's one moment there that I uh, was uh, exactly from the thing in the woods, and, and I had the writer said, "Let's do it like this because it, it, it's a very me moment. The ending is very me." Uh, so I was just trying to make something that I felt uh, good about. Uh, I was I wanted to have fun. You weren't given pressure to to recreate a certain style of the first one or anything. They allowed you to just break free and be you. Yes, because it was tonally they were so different from the screenplay. Uh, and there was a lot of stuff that Nacho could get away with because the first one is happening on a guy's head and that really didn't make sense here because it was a uh, real life. Um, uh, so that was one of the things that I said. I said, we're going to reference the first one. There's going to be some things that are, are like the first one, especially in the first appearances of Puka, uh, where it's still this goofy thing from the first one. But then it starts to change and become something else. And I guess that that's where I start to kick in and it becomes more me. But but yeah, there were references, uh, of course. But but this this was like much more Alejandro than Nacho. Yes. <clears throat> All right. Well, I'm not going to wrap this up without following up on your mention of the Raimi project and going to Vancouver. Tell me about that experience. Well, that was also pretty crazy because uh, <laughs> um, the schedule for that overlapped with Puka. Oh. So we had to push uh, the Vancouver shoot for a few days so I could finish Puka. And what um, was the Vancouver project? It's called, uh, but you, you have seen it, right? No? No. What is it? Oh, I thought you had. Uh, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's this uh, series for Quibi uh, called 50 oh, oh, States I'm of sorry. I didn't realize that's what you were talking about. Yeah, I have seen the Quibi one. Oh, yeah. So, and so that's that's a quickie, but about the overlap and all of that experience. Yeah, Queeby yeah, concept. Yeah. Well, the whole Queeby concept. Oh, that was a funny thing because when I mean the whole Queeby thing is uh, that's content to watch on your phone. 
um, and it it has to be a, a chapters that are between five and ten minutes. So this was very interesting. Uh, when we originally wrote it, I was working on it uh, with Eduardo Sanchez and Greg Hale from the Blair Witch Project, because we had an, we have another project that uh, we're also developing with uh, with Sam, and uh, they call and they say, "Hey, we're doing this uh, project for Quib. It's called Fifty States of Fright." Um, do you have any ideas? And well, since I'm the Latino, I said, okay, let's do something in Florida. And we came up with this idea set in Florida. And the thing is that when we wrote it, we wrote just like a 12 page screenplay. But then when we got to Vancouver, we realized they were going to split it in, in in chapters that are between five and ten uh, minutes. So ours was going to be two uh, chapters. And Greg and I said, you know what? Um, this is not a good uh, split. Let's do something. Uh, let's do more and and have them split it in three because you have that freedom. Um, and our 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 episode is found footage. It's shot from uh, police uh, body cams. So uh, I had the actors improvise uh, going into every location so we could have more. And we ended up having twenty minutes and it's split in three chapters. Uh, and that was crazy. As I was saying before, I was finishing Puka and Greg went to Vancouver to start prepping for me. And they picked me up from the set of Puka on my last day and, uh, and took me directly to LAX and oh. flew to Vancouver to start shooting uh, two days later the 50 States episode. And it was such a completely different experience because Puka is like, it's a movie. You have your shot list that you have to get in the day. This is fun footage. So the AD was saying, what's your shot list? And I'm like, what do you mean shot list? Is there <laughs> They're wearing body cams. It's like, you just throw them in and you get what you get. And, and yeah. what I did, what I did is I didn't show the uh, the locations to the actors, and it's a pretty crazy story. And I yeah. didn't show them the locations, and I said to them, "Just go in, and whatever you find in there, uh, you can talk about it, you can grab it, you can interact, whatever you build, uh, you build your thing." So uh, we did. We weren't blocking. The first take uh, was our blocking rehearsal. And they went blind into all the, uh, the scenes. And, you know, that was amazing because the screenplay grew so much. Like, the mythology that we had laid out in the screenplay expanded with all this improvisation. And it came out so much better than I was expecting. Well, it had yeah. to be really freeing to just go in there and make it up as you go along, having a basis for it, but giving everybody the creative freedom to do, you know, here's our situation, do what works. The only thing was that we were shooting with GoPros and we couldn't monitor what we were shooting. Um, oh. Yeah, they had made tests and all that. But one thing is to make a test on an office where you have good Wi-Fi. And another thing is when you're out there on the street and the GoPros see everything. So everyone in the crew is like hiding uh, one block away. And, and like you can't see what you're getting. So I had my headphones. I could listen to the actors but for most of the time i couldn't see what they were actually getting so i didn't know the material that we had and you know you can't stop a shoot to check uh, eight different gopros because right. you're killing you're killing the the speed so 
Um, yeah, well, that was challenging. Sounds a little bit scary, but really exciting too because of it. You know, it sounds like you'll get some really raw, fantastic footage, which you did in in the shorts. It was. I mean, yeah, we did. It. It, it was. Um, I would. I would turn to the DP the whole time, and I was like, "Do you think we're getting it?" And he's a very good DP. He did uh, Raimi's episode, and he had this face like he was freaking out, and he would turn to me and said the most Canadian thing ever. He would turn to me and said, "It's gonna be awesome." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's, I've, it's moving. I think I've worked more in Vancouver than anywhere else. <laughs> that yeah, it's a beautiful place to shoot, by the way. It's like I, I love shooting there so much, but yeah, it was it was a great experience. Well, uh, yeah. what's next for you after when the world uh, rebuilds itself? I have no, no clue. I I mean, there's a couple of. I mean, that's the thing. It's like we don't know what's next. We don't know when we're restarting anything. Uh, I do have some uh, projects. Hopefully, there's something I will be developing while we are uh, logged at home. I don't know how I'm going to do that with a 13-month-old baby uh, running around, but there's some stuff that I want to uh, develop, and there's uh, there's some projects uh, that are hopefully going to happen. Um, so I don't know. I can't talk. I, I guess I can't uh, talk about them yet. Uh, so um, someone that we know is going to be angry if I mention them. So, <laughs> well, I'm, then we don't want to risk the wrath of any gods. So. Yeah, and also, and also, I mean, you know, it's so hard. Like right now, I don't even know how to write. Like, how do you write? How is how, how is the world going to be when this ends? Um, it's so so diff difficult to just think about writing something right now. Yeah, uh, I, you know, this is downtime when I should be able to, but I I just don't feel like writing. I, I, I've been talking to a lot of friends, and it's like that to everyone. And also, by the way, like when you watch something, when I watch a movie now, I see two people hugging, and I'm like, no, don't get so close. <laughs> Exactly. So it's like it's like how do you write now? Is is this something that's gonna go away forever, or or are we gonna change in the, some way and we're gonna drop the hugs or whatever? I don't know. Like, yeah. uh, I I have no clue. I I don't know. So I don't know. It's I do have some projects, but I don't know, Mick. I don't know what's gonna be on the other side of uh, the tunnel. So let's let's get them. We'll see. We'll figure it out. I choose to have a half full glass, so uh, I'm optimistic. Oh, my glass is always full, so <laughs> it's fine. It's Completely. fine. It's uh, yeah. So uh, fuck this. We're gonna. It's gonna be. Uh, it's gonna be awesome. Like it's they say in Canada. <laughs> Perfect. It's gonna be awesome. Ale, it's always <laughs> yeah. so great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Postmortem, and can't wait to see what's next. Thank you, Mick. Thank you very much. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram.
And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 